at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. So, yeah, it's been a busy week in, uh, in Syracuse-related things. It's been a busy week in other Orange and Blue-related things. Um, Islanders hockey is back. <laughs> Catch the rush. Islanders hockey at Barclays Arena. If you Boise State Broncos football, <laughs> not so back. <laughs> now we're of course alluding to the New York Mets, who pulled off what seemed impossible just weeks ago. And and for most people who've ever watched baseball for most of the last twenty years, impossible. But not only did the Mets make the World Series, but they managed to sweep the Chicago Cubs. Day of 95 wins and a bunch of home run hitters um, in very impressive fashion. We will not talk about this for more than five minutes, I swear. But, Dan, your initial reactions. Um, I still haven't totally emotionally processed it. Uh, I think if this series had been a little more of a struggle, I would have, you know, felt probably a little more... uh, you know, normally about Mets achievements, which are shocking and, and wonderful for me. Um, but like the Dodgers series was, you know, a pretty back and forth one. Uh, I didn't think we were going to pull it out in the end. And we did. The, the Cubs series was just total domination from the jump, which was not expected with that lineup they have. So um, it was bizarre. It was It was bizarre to see the Mets just go in and absolutely ruin a team for four straight games like the like no none of the games ever like really felt all that much in doubt by the end so uh not used to that at all yeah i i mean you and i talked about it a lot and it's just it's such a weird even when the mets are good they just never make it easy Um, i mean and that goes all the way back you know to 69 like it just never it's never been easy for that team and and this year was the regular season wasn't easy, but the playoffs, you know, the Dodgers series, I, I was pretty convinced early on that, that the Mets were going to win based on pitching alone. I told you, as soon as, um, you know, the Mets tagged either Granky or Kershaw for a loss, that was it. Um, that ended up working out. And then obviously, um, you know, Mets pitching again, just, it was, it, while the final score might not indicate the Mets pitching is, is what brought them through. I mean, it's pretty clear that, that, Mets pitching allowed the Cubs bat did not allow the Cubs bats to take over that series the way they very well could have and sort of did against St. Louis. Yeah, there was some stat heading in. Uh, I forget the exact number, but basically the Cubs for for all of their their awesome young bats were the worst team in baseball against like ninety five mile per hour or above pitching, and. 
every Mets starter in the playoff rotation throws at least 95. Um, Cinder Darvis hitting 101 on the regular against the Dodgers in that first start in L.A. Um, you know, DeDrom hangs around 97 with his fastball. Harvey hangs around 97, 98. Matt's is the slowest one. He's at, like, 95 pretty consistently. So when you have that kind of pitching every night and then uh, you can hopefully get, like, six or seven innings and bridge to Familia, who is just since he added the split finger to his arsenal midseason has been pretty much unhittable um it makes things a lot easier and then obviously daniel murphy is is having a playoffs that no one else has ever had in history so that helps yeah i mean obviously i i hit on the pitching and that's big and i i'm glad you brought that stat up because i honestly hadn't seen that but it makes a lot of sense now why most of the balls we were seeing were fastballs um I think that, you know, with Murphy, I, I, I can't quantify it. I can't qualify it. There, there, there is no explanation for what's happening at this point. And, I mean, that's fine. And, and that's also what makes teams do what the Mets just did to the Cubs, is that it, it creates this sort of, you know, fever almost amongst, amongst the rest of the team that you know once murphy is hitting the way he is it's it's infectious people want to make sure that they're on base for him they want to make sure that they're driving him in if he's not hitting home runs it's it it was crazy to see and it reminded me um for a little while at least of the uh, 2005 uh, carlos beltran um playoff run that he had obviously um beltran does not hold the the greatest um place in, in met fan um memories no, I I would say he also gets a bad rap for for that third strike looking. Um, back in the two thousand six NLCS in Game Seven, but um, his two thousand five uh, run with the Astros was was at least at this point, um, you know, one of the top five to ten uh, playoff performances by a hitter, at least in the expanded playoff era. Yeah, and and Murphy's numbers are better. Like Murphy had a. I think a 1.8 OPS against the Cubs, which is just like, that shouldn't happen ever. No. That, and, and it's not a huge sample size, but at this point, it's ridiculous. He's he's at almost 1.5 for the entire playoffs. So um, it, he's now uh, the owns the streak for most home runs in a row in a playoff game, um, or most games with a home run. He's touching some like crazy Lou, Lou Gehrig streaks. Like it's the whole thing is, is absurd. And, and especially coming from Murphy, who, for Mets fans, is an often really fu- really good and a very often totally frustrating player. Um, power hitting is not usually his thing. It's not like he goes on power surges ever. He had never hit five home runs in a month before. Uh, now he has six and six games and seven in the playoffs. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, like, these things happen in baseball, though. It's And sometimes, you know, when Beltran does it, who's a, you know, a borderline Hall of Famer, you know, you can you can accept that. Um, when Daniel Murphy, who's like a borderline, you know, if you if you could have a better if you get a better second baseman, you'd probably like to most of the time. And he's, you know, a little bit above replacement level, uh, solid hitter, really awful fielder, not a very good base runner, despite the fact that he's made like three amazing base running plays in, in these playoffs alone. So um, just he can't do any wrong. And the Mets are, are much better for it. And it might cost uh, the Mets a chance to retain him for next year. But. Uh, right now, I think we're just riding the wave. I would agree, and that's your uh, that's your Mets update for the week. There will be 
at least one game before the next podcast. Um, so expect a little bit more of this next week, but I promise we're going to try to keep it in the five-minute range or so since there's plenty of fans who are Syracuse fans who are not Mets fans, plenty of Syracuse fans who just hate baseball, and yeah, I don't want to put those people out. Yes, you can always skip ahead and just, uh, or just indulge me. That's fine. Indulging is probably the better bet, but yeah, skip ahead. <laughs> we only get this like every every 15 years, so. <laughs> All right, so the topic at hand for this podcast um, most times is Syracuse football. Um, last week sucked. Didn't suck as bad as the, the USF game in many ways, but in others it was worse. Um <laughs> Which, which is very, very, very unfortunate for us. Um, Dan, what was, the, what was the best and worst part for you of, of Syracuse's loss to Virginia in triple overtime? Um, I would say, compared to the South Florida game, uh, which, was, which seemed like a breakdown in preparation and, you know, a total, like, just they, the team just came out in flat. Um, against Virginia... It seemed like the game plan was mostly there, and the team played about as well as you'd expect uh, until the fourth quarter, which is becoming a bit of a of an issue for SU. Um, it definitely wasn't as bad as South Florida because South Florida is probably a worse team, and Syracuse lost by twenty. Um, losing to Virginia by a touchdown triple overtime, you know, on its face, when you're not a, a much better program, you, you can get over that. But um, just very disappointing to see. Uh, a lot of the, the same mistakes happening over and over, the same uh, coaching miscues. Um, I know some people like are writing it off, but at the end of regulation, when uh, the Schaefer let Virginia just run the clock down to Ugh. two seconds rather than forcing them to take a field goal with like 35 left, despite the fact that he had three timeouts. Um, and, you know, maybe Dungey doesn't lead the team down the field in in 30 seconds but why not let him try not the, it's not the craziest thing in the world like, no, like it's not that it's not so far out of the realm of possibility that you don't give it a shot especially when you have three timeouts and you're going to use one to ice the kicker anyway which is kind of a nebulous thing um and it's a 25 yard field goal so the odds of him missing it are very slim so that just stuff like that drives me nuts um and then I'm not so annoyed by the not going for it for two. I, I probably would if, if given the choice uh, and looking at everything and looking at how the defense struggled down the stretch. But the the two point conversion at the second overtime where Dungey scored, I think on the first play, uh, where he th- threw that awesome pass to uh, to Steve Fishmile in the corner. Um, I think that was the second touchdown. Uh, probably would go for two there. I can't totally kill the staff for not, but um, just overall end-of-game management things, the defense wearing out, um, just getting repeatedly gashed by quick swing passes to the running back, which we knew was an issue from USF, and USF had more things to hurt us with, and Virginia just had the one and was able to continue to do it. So um, just some really frustrating things in a, in a game that, that Syracuse looked like it had in hand for three quarters. Yeah, I you know what, I... The problem is, against UVA, I was never really convinced we were, like, even when we were up by 10 going into the fourth, I, I was never sitting there going, like, this game's over and done with, if only because the crack started showing against, um, like, with, with this defense, late in the third, going into the fourth. I mean, 
yes, the defense needs to get off the field for the offense to, to run more plays, but the offense only ran 18 plays in the second half. They settled for a field goal on a long drive in the third quarter. Uh, the fourth quarter, you know, they had one uh, drive in that quarter as well and really, really didn't look like they were trying to do anything but, you know, run out some clock. And even then, it didn't work. Um, I, I know I, I recapped the play calling uh, for the first half of the season uh, for Leicester. And you know what? There's a lot of good there. There's also some some harbingers of maybe some bad things to come against better teams. Um, Syracuse has not really racked up the yardage that one would think um, with a better offense. They've been more efficient. They've had less plays from scrimmage. Um, while they're getting into the red zone more, um, they're still really not pushing it into the end zone as much as they should. Um, and then we're seeing you know, a, a skewed kind of um, bit of play calling toward the pass. Obviously, again, I'm including the... Uh, you know, those pocket breakdown runs as uh, passing play calls, because that's what they are. Um, and yeah, I, I think too much is being put on Dungy, and I think too much is being put on Dungy by the coaching staff afterward, too. Um, I think that's something we can get into a little bit later. Um, what I saw in the UVA game was was a bit of a killer um, because of, you know, the two things, well, the one you mentioned in particular, not calling that timeout um, just annoyed me to no end. I mean, like you said, Dungy can score pretty quickly. After we got that turnover late in the second, he scored in one play. Um, yes, it was from closer, but um, you know this is a team that can score quickly, especially with some timeouts. Um, and then I know I know Sean was a little more bent and twisted than than you or I were about the uh, the two point conversion try um, in the second overtime that probably should have happened. But um, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. Yes, the defense was getting shredded, but you can't necessarily assume you know, that every single time. But I also think that this coaching staff has a tendency to put things on the defense instead of letting the offense um, win. And based on the current personnel and, and the way they've been performing this season, that might be a terrible idea. Dan, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry. For some reason, my uh, staff doesn't like to let me unmute myself for <laughs> seconds at a time. Um, no, I totally agree. I think, especially when the defense had been showing cracks pretty much the entire fourth quarter, it wasn't like um, they had given up some big plays here and there. It was like once the fourth quarter hit, uh, you know, whether it was fatigue or, or whatnot, it just the defense was unable to make a stop. Um, Virginia cut down the lead really quick. Um, they had that really long sustained drive where they were picking, they were just gashing us for yardage. So. Uh, you, you would hope that the staff would recognize that, and instead of you know just leaning on the guy, the team identity or whatever of, of going with the defense, like you have to make the best call based on what you're seeing on the field, whether or not that's admitting something's not working for one side of the ball or not. Um, you can't just like lean back and, and throw up your arms and say, yeah, well we put it on the defense, and the defense is what we're known for because this year the the offense is probably the better side of the ball at least down the stretch um i trust them i trust the offensive score more than i trust the defense to make a big stop but it's just about anyone late in games so um and and like you said the the blaming dungy stuff it's it's you know there has to be coaching done and i totally understand that dungy's not perfect and and we've said that like we we've been very you know quick to tell people to not 
crazy when Dungeon makes fresh mistakes, and he's still not making all that many. Um, but I, I also don't really get why you have to remind everyone of that every time anything's asked uh, in the press. I mean, it's it's. I, I just don't know why the coaching staff can't just say, you know, he's a freshman, he's going to make some mistakes, but he's playing really well, and move on, rather than pinning every like particular thing he hasn't done well. It, it almost seems like when a coach is trying to get through to someone through the media, and unless we're missing something about Dungy's personality, it just doesn't seem like that's necessary. Um, if it was, then I'd, I'd get it more if it was, you know, if it was Johnny Manziel out there who everyone knows what his, you know, MO is, that's fine. But Dungy seems like he's probably pretty receptive to coaching. So I, I don't know. Lester especially is definitely not all that media trained for better or worse. And uh, on occasion, we get a lot more out of him than any other coach on the team, which is nice. But sometimes he, he just kind of lets go what he's, you know, whatever's on his mind. And maybe that comes back and bites him. And maybe that's something he needs to work at um, being a first time offensive coordinator at this level. Uh, But it is a little strange that every week we do have to hear, you know, the exact gripes against uh, Eric Dungy. Uh, despite the fact that he's been probably the best quarterback we've had in four years, even as a true freshman, um, and, you know, way better than anyone could have envisioned. Uh, So hopefully there is some kind of ulterior motive that is working there, but it is strange to see so consistently. Yeah, and and I think, like, this has become a bit of an issue for the staff. And, you know, if, if we were winning, you could probably brush it under the rug. But since we're not, it, it becomes much more difficult to take on a week-to-week basis. Like, again, obviously Dungy makes some mistakes here and there, but no, Dungy is not the reason we're losing games. Um, Dungy's not the reason why blocking is breaking down. Um, and, like, you know, it was very surprising to hear that from Rob Trudeau to take a cue from his offensive coordinator and just start kind of piling on some criticism. Like, at the pro level, it doesn't work. Um, you know, wh- whether you're playing for the Colts and you're blocking for Andrew Luck or you're playing for the freaking Jaguars and you're blocking for Blake Bortles, it doesn't matter. Um, any offensive lineman who's going to sit there and blame a quarterback for, um, you know, blocking breakdowns, that that's a guy who's not going to last long. And, you know, Trudeau's a leader on this team. Trudeau's a very good offensive lineman. Trudeau probably has more pro potential right now than anybody else on the team. Um and it was, it was surprising to see that. I don't want to hammer the kid too much. I just think that right now, him and and if this thing continues to fall apart a little bit, I think you're going to start seeing it from more of the veterans. Um, I think we're going to see more talking out against certain players, and I don't like it. Um, if we're going to talk out about any certain players, like why not identify a secondary that can't cover anything? How about you know linebackers who, well, they played better against Virginia than they did against USF, still really struggling coverage and you could see the cracks showing um you know th- this is to me it it is mind-blowing that that we're isolating certain players it's always been you know for, for all the family atmosphere and the and the team first stuff that that Schaefer preaches that there's an awful lot of finger pointing going on and and to me um I don't I won't say it's a reflection on him directly but something in the culture of the team right now is, is creating just again things we don't see like you don't see this on on oh and six teams never mind six and oh teams or three and three te- like this doesn't happen at the collegiate level nobody sits around and points fingers and, and it's weird that we're watching um this happen and it's even weirder that there's a portion of the fan base defending it 
Yeah, and it, and it's it's you know a lot of the same people that want to uh, automatically appoint Dungey as the four year starter and the next straight Syracuse quarterback and the guy we've been waiting for sits McNabb, and that's all fine because he does look the part. But then you think that he would also get a little bit of leeway from you know occasionally maybe not making the quickest read when he's a when he's a freshman. Like that's something that comes along later, um, and also. So it's it's confusing that there that this is apparently such a point of contention that you're hearing it from the uh, you know top offensive lineman and the offensive coordinator. You know he is a freshman. He is coming out of you know he's not coming in from Texas where they all run the spread and all make the exact perfect read every time for eight years of of middle school and high school football. Um, you'd think that if this is such a struggle for Dungy, which it's hard to tell or not because we don't know the uh, precise play call on every play, you know, maybe you adjust and hold in an extra blocker to pick up the blitz uh, occasionally just to give him a, a little more time or to make things a little easier on him. So uh, they all need to figure that out. I, I know this seems to, you know, maybe it's something that's a little more frustrating for us than it is for others, but you would like to see a team that doesn't look like it's, uh, it's not, a, it's not great when a team is, is outwardly showing it seems to the media, um, for I don't know why it doesn't really seem like there's much to gain from it. So hopefully everyone gets on the same page going forward and, and, you know, hope if they can pick up a win this week, I'm sure we'll all not mind whatever, whatever they say afterwards, as long as it's not too ridiculous, as long as uh, no, you know, current events or, or uh, civil conflicts are brought up. Yeah. That, I think that that's my other worry. Like if we're being so frank about the team itself, I, I'm very worried about our, uh, kind of a, a, as we creep into, you know, pig with laces and, and, and ISIS mentions territory. Like I, I feel like Schaefer's moved on from that. Um, but, and, and this isn't to overly criticize him. I actually really, really like the guy. Um, I've met him and I think that he is, probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, but I, I think that, you know, nice doesn't always translate to wins. And, and sometimes, like, nice can sometimes result in people being a little too, just like, bristly to criticism. I, I think that, that we're seeing we're seeing a little too much of that. Like, it's you're going to get criticized if you're a D1 coach. You're going to get criticized if you're a Power 5 coach in particular. Um, and when you're the only game in town and basically the pro team of a city, um, you're also going to get <laughs> like a ton of, um, you know, criticism when, when things are bad. But at the same time, you're going to get praise when things are good. Um, it, it's it seems pretty clear based on Donnie Simmons comments that um, there's an enemy being painted up in the uh, in the locker room, probably since the summer. And that enemy is the media. Um, and you know, it's, again, it's very shocking, especially for a team that represents a school that is the number one journalism school in the country. You would think that, you know, anyone with a keyboard that went there probably has an opinion and is probably sharing it somewhere. Yeah, it's silly. And the media, like Syracuse's media is so much more fair than most major programs, um, I don't think anyone there has done anything to step out of line. Yet there really is this 
kind of contemptuous relationship coming mostly from the team. And I don't know if that's something that was kind of artificially put in place to r- rally someone or something, but it's, it's really, it, it comes off as immature a lot of the time. It's totally like people are just trying to do their jobs. Um, they're having media is good for you. Like if they would allow the Stephen Bailey's and night minks of the world to share the positive stories from the team, they would put them in the paper. Like it's, it's not crazy when, when, when you let them talk to the players and learn about the players and, and their personalities and their backgrounds, those stories go and get written and everyone likes them and they're easy to support and you kind of uh, gain some goodwill from it. Instead, we have this super frustrating like bunker mentality um, where, you know, one thing goes wrong or, you know, even after the 3-0 start, we saw that whole press conference, which is a debacle. Um you know, something looks like it might not go right forever and people are freaking out because, I don't know, they don't want people noticing. It's it's bizarre. And um, as someone who looks at a lot of college football teams, and not just Syracuse, I can't, I mean, a lot of teams have a similar relationship with their local media, but oftentimes that local media is actually hard on them or um, it, it you can kind of understand where it's coming from. Uh, or they are more relevant on a national scale, so they face more criticism. Um, Syracuse doesn't really have any of those problems, so I, I struggle to understand the rationale for it. No, I, I completely agree, and you know, without spending, without belaboring it, you know, I, I hope it changes. I, I know that there was that quote that came out after the Jackson State um, thing. For for those who weren't paying attention. Uh, Jackson State's local newspaper said that they would no longer be covering the team in protest of not getting access, and Jackson State was fine with it. Um, and they were like, great, that's actually what we wanted. <laughs> and, you know, in, in kind of the aftermath of that, there was a quote that said, you know, 90% of positive stories in college sports go unreported because of a lack of access for media. And, and I think that, you know, I, I get behind that quote 100%. It, it just seems like there were all these cool stories, and there's all these great... I mean, SU, SU's football team has so many great stories, so many kids. Like, And, then, and that's the, the, the painful part here, is that like Schaefer cares so much about these kids, and these kids who, you know, whether it's Darrell Eskridge, like, or, you know, Hunt's background, like, all these kids who have these stories, and, like, you can actually really, you know, empathize with them, and, and get behind them, and, and want to root for them, and... Right now, you root for them collectively on the team, but you can root for these guys individually. Um, and it's insane that that more access isn't granted to allow these stories to come out there. And we also have like a group where, uh, you know, we, I don't think anyone's over the top in terms of being a homer like you do see in other towns. But like Brent roots for the team, Chris Tarlson's admitted he roots for the team. Bailey is a little more impartial, but he's a he's a alum. Um, who knows with Bud, I, I don't know at all with Bud, but like, it's a group of people that are supportive of the team in one way or another. And as a media member, I can tell you things are easier. You get more traffic, you have more to write about. It's just a much easier culture when the team that you're covering is good. It's, it's not a, even a debate when things are bad. Yes, you can get a slight bump and there are, you know, some stories you can write, but Overall, you will get more out of it if the team is good. So the local media is not rooting against Syracuse football. It's not hoping for Syracuse football to go 3-9 and nine every year. 
because after a while that gets stale and people stop caring. The team, the 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 newspaper would do would be doing better if the team is good every year. So there's there, the fact that people think there's like some kind of conspiracy is so patently false and absurd. Uh, it, it just makes my brain stream every time I see anyone <laughs> say that Syracuse.com writers are out for the te- out to get the team and are just trying to write clickbaity stories. No, they're not because if the team was good. Their paper would be doing better. They probably wouldn't have to lay off people all the time. Uh, it was. It's. Uh, it drives me nuts. So, yes, if you if you actually <laughs> think that there is some kind of brand conspiracy for Syracuse.com or anyone else or or Noons or whoever uh, to want the, to want the team to not be, be good for traffic or page view or. Uh, newspaper subscription purposes, you are an insane person, and I welcome you to tweet me your rebuttal, and I will call you out on Twitter for being stupid. Yeah. Dan, coming in with some some, some not at all. Coming in hot. <laughs> coming in hot, but not with hot Fired takes. These Friday are... <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is Friday morning for both of us. It is, it's 8 o'clock in the morning here, and the fact that I have enough energy to do this is very shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Yet here we are. Um, on that note, go for a little halftime. We can, uh, you know, get 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 a drink in us to uh, to calm things down a little bit. I might need to after that. There it is. Too much energy for eleven seventeen. <laughs> All right, Dan. What have you been? Uh, what have you been drinking? Um, a lot of fallish stuff. Uh, Sierra Nevada's Oktoberfest has been pretty much a staple. Uh, Talked about that, I think, a couple times, so won't get too much into it. Um, I had Electric Peel, which is an American uh, pale ale from Magitat. Um, didn't love it at first, but it kind of grew on me. Has some really interesting citrus notes, uh, really drinkable. Had a couple of those watching one of the Mets games. Can't remember which one. Um, I also tried Captain Lawrence, released a grapefruit IPA, mm-hmm. uh, kind of similar to the Ballast Point Sculpin. Um, not as good, but quite drinkable i don't think it quite marries the grapefruit and the ipa as well as the ballast point does um but they're both very apparent um it just doesn't i don't know the flavors aren't quite blended as as perfectly but it's still very drinkable very very good if you like grapefruit it's quite grapefruity um and you know captain lawrence does really good work so not really too surprised that it's a, a very solid drink um and then had brooklyn lager while watching the uh, Mets clinched the World Series, because that was the only New York beer on tap where I was, which was weird, but Brooklyn Lager is always a solid choice. Um, nice, like, kind of caramel notes, um, very drinkable. Uh, and some that was after I had accidentally ordered Deuce Island and hadn't realized what I was doing, so I had one of those, and it didn't do my team to, uh, to failure, so that was good. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... I messed that up. What did I drink? Oh, I accidentally ordered a Belgian pale ale during the uh, USA-Belgium game last year. And, and of course, we know how that worked out. I was just so, so angry. You're the reason that Lukaku made that goal. Yes, uh, very much so. Things that I drank um, in the last week. I had... Campfire Stout from Highwater Brewing. And I mentioned this one last year and probably the year before as well. Um, really enjoyable stout. It's nice, crisp. It's got a, got a very s'moresy kind of finish on it. 
which is which is very good. Um, I'd highly recommend serving this one at somewhere in like the 50 to 55 degree range um, versus like your typical 38 to 40. I just think in general it uh, it allows all of those kind of dessert tones to come out. Hope that didn't sound too douchey, but chances are it did. Um, <laughs> I'd had a Noble Aleworks Galaxy Showers. I know I've discussed them um, quite a bit. They had the shower series that uh, that features. Um, you know, one style of hops um, in each selection. They probably do about eight to ten of those a year. Um, I had Grape Ape from Smog City. I know I discussed that in my kind of uh, Friday, you know, matchup post. Grape Ape is uh, is one of Smog City's IPAs. Um, they put it out a couple times a year. It's, uh, it's fermented with grapes, which is where you get the Grape Ape name. Really, really delicious beer. Snaggy Growler of that over at Smog City. Um, other things I enjoyed. Um, had to back up to my old stomping grounds at a library ale house up in Santa Monica. Um, and they had some Russian River stuff on tap. Had myself some Row 2 Hill 56 Pale Ale. Also grabbed Blind Pig because that was on. Um, and then they also had uh, Avery Rumpkin on tap, which uh, I know I sent you a picture of then. Such an enjoyable beer. Just really, really does a nice job of marrying the pumpkin and rum flavors in just the right amount. Yeah, that looked uh, wonderful. It was. Um, also had Modern Times Fruitlands. Their, uh, their Fruitlands Goza, they had, uh, that one's cherries, but they had one with apricots. Um, so I got to enjoy that. Um, and then last night I had uh, Main Beer Company's A Tiny Beautiful Something. It's a pale ale. I wouldn't say it's the same level as uh, Peeper, but nonetheless, enjoyable beer. Nice to kind of just wind down for the evening with one of those. Yeah, the Peeper that we had uh, when you were in New York, uh, I don't think I've had anything from them other than that, and that was really good. So, uh, But I don't see a lot from them down this way. They, uh, Aaron was telling me that the Whole Foods right over by where we were... Um, had Mo, like a bunch of their stuff here and there. Mo gets around. Um, lunch is a lot harder to find, but lunch is highly recommended. Dinner is is their kind of like all world IPA that I still yet to try. Um, just due to distribution issues to get out here, obviously. Um, but yeah, Peeper was like it. I mean, I like the pale ales out here, but I could drink that one all day. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's on like the other side of the world for me. Um, not not California or Maine, just uh, the Lower East Side. Um, <laughs> so that's some I'm down that way. Maybe I'll check it out, but it's a it's kind of a hike. Do not blame me there. Got to get across town. That's no fun. Yeah, I, I do not miss those days. <laughs> Although around here, you don't have public transportation to do it. You have to drive. So sometimes it takes me two hours to get to a USC game. Yes, I have heard that about uh, Los Angeles because I have watched uh, SNL. Yeah, the Californians. R.I.P. You know what, though? I actually kind of... I I'm, think the jury's out on like if they decide to bring the Millennials as like a thing. Yeah, it seems like that's what they were doing. It seemed clever for, like, I'd say... <laughs> yeah, I'd say like 60% of it was clever, but then I think 40% wasn't, and that might have hurt the 
which sounds exactly like the Californians. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh, I could see this is kind of a funny sketch. Yeah. And then three years later, 12 times. And so back to football. Um, Jason Pitt. Um, nobody cares outside the fact that it's a Syracuse football game. Uh, we face Pitt. I believe it's about what sixty straight times now, and nobody cares. Like not it's many, yeah. Not a single person cares, and and, and this is, I think, the weirdest um, annual series around. In in terms of you know, I think maybe not major college football. I think I'm sure there's there's a couple SEC series that probably defy logic, but this one, you have two teams that were independents for, you know. 30 plus years together and then have been in two conferences together and they will now be forever linked at least until realignment decides we're going to have two conferences of 40 teams apiece. Um, we'll be forever linked as, as ACC mates, you know, leaving the big East. Um, one Syracuse obviously being blamed for the big East death over the other, but yeah, it's, it's just a really weird um, series that nobody, even within the, uh, the fan base is just, can get behind maybe one day maybe if you know maybe if we meet in an ACC championship game in some hypothetical universe down the road the the venom ramps up but um, I'm not holding out much hope yeah I think that would require the uh the people at the great the Paladin Collider to actually find like the multiverse um but it, I mean we've it, the the reasons for it have been discussed it, basically Pitt and Syracuse have never been good at the same time um and they just spend, you know, history beating up on one another when the other one's bad. So I think there could be a rivalry there if both teams were like perennial bowl teams and playing for something. But it just doesn't seem like that's ever been in the cards, despite the fact that both teams have had a ton of success historically. Um, and they recruited against each other. It's weird. It's we and, and they don't like each other in basketball where there actually is some some heat for the game. Very bizarre that this isn't like more of a rivalry, but it's not, and you can't force it. So it is what it is. Um, Pitt is basically having the season. I mean, it, what could be a really terrible, terrible year. Uh, their starting quarterback, who I don't think is very good, but was still their starting quarterback, went down very early. Their starting running back, who is very good, was the ACC Player of the Year last year. James Conner went down uh, after what two games, three games. Very quickly. Actually, he only had eight rushes on the year before he got hurt. Uh, and instead of going in the tank, they plugged in Nate Peterman, who has been way better than people would have expected. He, he takes a decent amount of sacks, but that's really the only knock on him. He throws, uh, he's, he has almost 1,000 yards already in the year. He actually has a very similar profile to, uh, to Dungy. Probably not as many, not quite as a big play oriented. Doesn't make, uh, you know... Dungy has uh, Dungy's averaging uh, actually it's not that far off seven point five yards an attempt. Peterman's at seven. Um, Peterman has a higher completion percentage, but he's probably not throwing down the field as much. Uh, they both have nine touchdowns. They've kept interceptions down. Um, so it's interesting that they've. He's obviously a junior, so he's uh, been in the pro the system. Um, if that's if you can even call Pitt's current coaching situation something that has a system. Um, but he's been at Pitt longer, so a little more experience. But he's definitely playing above where I bet most people thought. Helps that he has Tyler Boyd, who's a bona fide superstar at receiver. And then Quadri Ellison's done a really nice job filling in for Connor. He has 
uh, almost 600 yards, five touchdowns, getting six yards to carry. Um, Pitt's just done a really nice job plugging in people and rolling along and not, you know, there's no excuses for them. They've had as many bad injuries as you can imagine, and they are playing really good football. Right. So, like, without this devolving into a commentary on coaching, and I don't think it should, um, at this juncture at least, um, Pitt is... The reason I think Pitt could be a rival, like a bona fide one, is because they're everything Syracuse should have been for the past 15 years. Um, No, SU didn't have the talent to be, you know, um, a perennial eight or nine win team, but Pitt has managed to, you know, be a perennial six and six team that occasionally bats a little over that. I know I'm looking at 09. in particular, and maybe this year too, um, Pitt excels at, at nothing greater than anyone, but manages to do everything you know above average. Um, they they can have mistake laden football, but they usually follow that up with with a game that's just very sound. I mean, they've suffered their fair share of upsets in recent seasons, embarrassing ones, um, but they manage to bounce back. And like while while I feel like SU kind of folds under under an upset. Um, you know, Pitt, I mean, what was it? A couple of years ago, they lost to Youngstown State. Um, they still made a bowl game anyway at 6-6. Six and six. Um, Yes, it was the Birmingham Bowl. You know what? I would take it at this point. Um, there's there's not a respect for Pitt, but, but, but I have an appreciation for what they've been able to do um, given just, I think, minimal everything, like not having an on-campus stadium, having, you know, similar-ish resources to what Syracuse has at its disposal. Being in the same conference... The entire time, so having the same amount of, um, you know, media revenues. There's just, and having more coaching upheaval than Syracuse has. I think the deck has been stacked against Pittsburgh and Syracuse in equal measure, and Pittsburgh's been able to come out still seeming like a, you know, a program worth someone's time. And and we, you know, to the larger college football, um, is fan base, just in general, from a national standpoint. Has, has not embraced us in the same way because of our lack of success. Um, in basketball, we have a rivalry a little bit, if only because SU has struggled to beat them here and there. Um, if there wasn't a rivalry going into a couple of years ago, I think Tyler Ennis' shot at the buzzer um, helped create much more of that. Um, it'll never be Georgetown. It'll never be UConn. probably won't even be Villanova or St. John's. But um, you know, 20 years down the line, um, in our new kind of reality... Um, post-conference realignment. Pitt's going to have to be more important. Um, that already is the case in basketball. I just don't I don't know if football is ever going to get there. Yeah, it, it's it's strange, and it seems like a natural thing, but you know, I think we've laid out kind of the reality of it. Um, but I think you make an interesting point with Pitt kind of being a model, and I think some of their fans would probably think uh, say that they underachieved relative to the talent they brought in um, in the last couple of years. But like you said, Pitt's been to seven straight bowls. Uh, they could make it eight after Saturday if they beat Syracuse. Um, and Syracuse, like, we, I've seen some people cite Pitt as a cautionary tale for making coaching changes, um, which isn't really fair because Pitt hasn't made coaching changes. They've had coaches leave, aside from one higher, the Mike Haywood debacle, which I, you know, it's hard to pin that on Pitt. It, you know, you, you can't, you have to trust your coaches to not, you know, get into domestic uh, abuse issues a month after they were hired. But 
pretty much everyone else has come into pit and at least had a, a decent amount of success. Uh, everyone's made balls once that they've never had like a truly terrible season. Um, and despite the fact that they've had what five coaches in, in six or seven years now, they continue to roll along. And um, I think, you know, you'd obviously like someone, your coaches to hang around for more than one or two years and, and going through that change process isn't easy. Um, especially when you're revamping staffs and, and changing systems all the time, it's really tough on the players, but the fact that they've made so many hires in a row and they've all gone to bowl games and at least kept some momentum up, um, even when then they turn around and leave and, and you're starting from square one, it says a lot about uh, their hiring process and now they have a new AD, so we'll see if things change. But they, they continually bring in good coaches and it also proves that if there is a coaching change, it doesn't automatically doom you to resetting the uh, the clock and and having to sit through, you know, multiple bowlless years. And, and Syracuse saw that. I mean, Schaefer came in and people didn't really expect him to, for, to make a bowl in year one, and he did. So um, I think there's a bit of a misnomer in terms of the impact of a coaching change, at least in the short term. Um, Pitt, I, I don't think most schools would survive it as well as Pitt has, but uh, I think they're not really a cautionary tale. I think that they show that you can get by with uh, – you know, if you continue to bring the best possible people in. Um, and I don't think Narduzzi will be there forever, but he's the latest line in a, a number of churches who have gone to bigger programs, but they, they keep on uh, hitting the hires they do make on the head, and they're not afraid of making a hire that might be one that's attractive to a bigger school later on because they just want the best guys in for the job. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, you and I have talked about this. We talked about this in the site a ton. Um, the biggest issue for Syracuse, I think, hiring anyone is, you know, trying to find the next Bayheim, trying to find the next Pasqualoni or, or McPherson. There's just, uh, for some reason, Syracuse feels like they're not a, at the same, fans both feel like they're not a destination job, but also shouldn't be hiring someone who's going to leave in four years. And, you know, that's how you get all the venom, um, toward Marone on his way out, um, I just think that, you know, you're right. Pitt has managed to create continuity through a lack of it um, by just hiring guys who, who they knew would be successful, and whether it was at Pitt or somewhere else, they would at least create enough success to be 6-6. Six and six. Um, Syracuse, on the other hand, you know, you have a continuity hire with Schaefer, who um, it seemed like that worked um, going into 2013, but then since then... We've seen, you know, the the hallmarks of a non-continuity hire. Um, I guess to me, I, uh, I I think that it might be time to take a look at Pitt's strategy and say, you know, this maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe this, I mean, again, not calling for Shaver to be fired this year. I really hope that he turns this thing around. But um, more just saying, like, maybe it's time for the university, though, to to reevaluate how it makes these football hires. Um, given that other schools with similar situations have been able to succeed uh, with a very different strategy. And I do think, like you said, I think Narduzzi spends three or four years there, and I'm sure he's lined up for probably the Michigan State job whenever, uh, you know, D'Antonio decides to head down to SEC or something. Yeah, it's just there's no reason to be afraid of, of the success if you're Syracuse. Like, 
And and I think maybe we won't have that now. We have a new AD who is yet to make a big hire, who's you know seems to be taking a very patient approach, which he should. Um, but in the world, in a world where Stott Schaefer doesn't work out, which I'm not, you know, outright projecting or hoping for or anything. I hope Schaefer, you know, pulls a couple of uh, rabbits out of his hat and we can get to a bowl and, and beating Pitt this weekend would kind of offset one of the last two losses. Like as bad as losing the USF or UVA is beating Pitt's just as good in the other direction. So, you know, the year is far from lost for three and three, um, despite some of my tweets after that game. But um, I think uh, in, a, in a world where Syracuse does have to make a hire, like being afraid of success is silly. And like you coaches move, that just happens in the sport. Um, I think just the fact that we had passed Deloney for so long kind of blindsided us to Marone leaving uh, and, and kind of the shifting uh, grounds of where college football coaching is. Guys just don't sit around the same job forever. There's, there's literally one guy in college football who is anywhere close to being what Bayheim is or, or Coach Tay is, uh, and that's Bill Snyder. And Bill Snyder is great, but he's also very much of, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously around Bayheim's age, probably even older. He's of a, a past generation. Um, now people are going, going up the ladder, trying their hand at the NFL, uh, you know, making the runs at the SEC or, or the Big Ten, the Big, Big Ten jobs. Like, it's just a reality. Everyone's going to try to go to that next step. And I don't blame anyone for doing that. So instead of trying to hire a coach who you think, for whatever reason, I don't know, isn't good enough to leave or something, just go get the best guy. And if he leaves, it's probably for good reason. It probably means that he was good where he was. So, um, Hopefully, whenever Syracuse has to make another hire, they aren't like afraid of their own shadow and just go and get the best guy available instead of worrying about, you know, will this guy like his uh, his home and manliness and his and and the school system? Like, just go get the guy who's going to win the most. And if he wins too much and he has to, and he goes to take the job at uh, Ole Miss, you know, you have a guy that was good enough where an SEC school went and poached him. So go get, go get another one. Absolutely. And yeah, again, not to, I think both of us want to make that clear that we're not calling for any sort of firing or, or, or new hire or anything like that. We're more just pointing out that there's a strategy in place at Pitt that if things happen at SU, that uh, that we have alternatives to the strategy that, you know, we've, we've put in place up until this point. Um, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Dan, I guess we got about ten minutes left. What uh, what do you see happening in, in in Saturday's game? I know we haven't really. I know you got to d- dig down a little bit into kind of some of the playmakers for Pitt. Um, what do you see happening on on Saturday, and uh, kind of how and why? Um, well, Pitt's had our number for years now. I, I don't think that changes. I think they're just uh, more stable in what they do, even with the injuries. I think Tyler Boyd is a huge playmaker um and we've had uh, some complaints about Syracuse uh using their own playmakers um Tyler Boyd's a good one to point at in terms of like what we should be doing with Steve Ishmael he has a 39 percent target rate he catches the ball over 80 percent of the time he's getting almost 10 yards of catch he has 50 targets already this year through six games which is you know eight or nine a game that's where people Syracuse should be with Irv with Steve Ishmael with the best players in the team um, 
unfortunately, I don't think, see anything changing. Tyler Boyd's been very good at Syracuse uh, in his career. I'll pull up the stats in a second. Um, I do think it'll be close. I don't think Pitt will blow us out. I think uh, it probably helps that the two staffs are, are pretty familiar with one another, so I expect it to be a pretty close team. Um, I think Pitt will pull it out by a touchdown, maybe less. I think it'll go into the fourth quarter like these last couple games have gone. Unfortunately, I, I see the Panthers winning. Um, but I, I, I do think it'll be it'll probably be frustrating based on, on four straight losses, but I think in a vacuum, it won't be a bad performance by Syracuse. I just think that uh, Tyler Boyd is going to be the, um, the X factor for Pitt as he so often is. I'm actually I'm pulling up his game log now because I remember he absolutely torched us in one of these last couple games. Um, against Syracuse last year, he had seven catches for 126 yards and a touchdown. And two years ago, he had 10 catches for 82 yards in that really low-storing 17-16 uh, game. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, uh, I just think that the Syracuse defense is just too much uh trending toward the hot garbage on the hot garbage scale of one to ten to uh to keep it a low score i think that syracuse can hang with Pitt offensively um but i think the defense just gets outpaced after a while um i was worried last week um you know Pitt was able to beat georgia tech peterman played very very well at quarterback um he's not a world beater like you alluded to he's he's uh he's just a really efficient um guy who I wouldn't call him a game manager. He makes plays. Um, but he knows how to utilize uh, the tools that they have out there, and, and namely Tyler Boyd, um, who obviously is one of the better receivers in the conference. Um, I, I think as much as I want to see Syracuse pull this upset, as much as I think they can, and to be honest, there isn't a week that, that, that goes by that... I mean, Syracuse could have won every game they played this year. Um, they decided not to against a couple... Uh, teams, but uh, Syracuse has been able to win games this year, and it's more than we could say for last season, um, and that's progress, but I, I do think that between Pitt having our number, between us not being able to stop um, any opposing offense of late, um, and, and that might put too much on Dungy, I think um, I think we're going to lose a 34-26 game that uh, that makes me very angry and, uh, and results in a very uh, very salty uh, offensive play calling breakdown article next week. Yeah, um, we'll see. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, Narduzzi hasn't wasted too much time in installing the defense that became so feared at Michigan State. It's obviously not quite that good at Pitt, but the numbers uh, bear out pretty well for them. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, Tim Luster responds obviously he has a Diane Schaefer who comes from a very similar background so maybe he can get some insight there but Pitt's defense is no joke they especially against the pass they they give up uh they you can get them on the big play occasionally but overall they've been defending the pass incredibly well um the run has been a little more uh they've been a little more susceptible to the run um their advanced metrics aren't all that great there but uh, I think part of that is playing Iowa, um, which is not good for teams this year. Iowa is actually really good. So um, I'll be interested to see how the offense responds. It's a really good test for Syracuse. And if, if Lester can go store some points, 
Um, even if it's a loss, if if they Syracuse can move the ball as well as they have in, in weeks past and they'll drop like 35 on Pitt, I think that'd be a really good sign. Um, hopefully the defense didn't keep up their end, although I don't have a ton of faith in them based on the last couple weeks. Yeah, I, I would like to see, and obviously we won't know this until closer to kickoff, I'd like to see if Rodney Williams comes back. Um, I think that that could be a huge you know uptick in production. Um, I think as long as Wiggum's out there, and again, I'm not going to hammer the kid too much, but he's not really good at covering anybody. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind giving somebody else a shot at this point. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think if Rodney Williams comes back, that might help a little over the top. I know we've gotten just completely roasted um, with him and in and out of the lineup, but um, at least he would make things a little bit better. Um, We didn't discuss yet, might as well uh, briefly. um, Dungy's favorite target, Ben Lewis, will not be playing in this game. Um, If everyone remembers, in the second half last week, he uh, seemed to get hit, um, you know, pretty hard in the... uh, was it elbow or shoulder, Dan? Do you remember? I, I can't remember the specific play, but um, you know we have harped on Ben Lewis and carries, but overall Ben Lewis is a really useful player, so it's not not great news for SU. No, and I think I, I got into this in the injury report article. I think the one one caveat here is that uh, this could give Dante Strickland a lot more burn, which I think could be a very very good thing for this team. Um, you know, he, he's been dynamic. He's played well. Um, it's just that he hasn't gotten more than a few chances, and I'd like to see what he can do. Um, I know Kendall Moore is also doubtful. Um, we've talked about him as well. Moore is one of the better blockers on the team, obviously, because he's a converted offensive lineman. Um, I think that all the issues that Lester and, and Trudeau were alluding to in terms of blocking schemes, that extra blitzer, um, something that, that the more could potentially help pick up if we're not going to use the tight end in the passing game, and we didn't last week. Um, might as well have him out there as a blocker, and I think he, he's, a, he's a big step up from Paris um, in that regard. So in doubtful means he's probably not going to play, but uh, I can hold out hope that at least the progress from out to doubtful means that if he's not in this week, that maybe he's back next week. Yeah, it'd be nice to have all all hands on deck as we hit the uh, the meat of this really tough ACC stretch that we're about to go into. Yep, and that's why this game is so critical, because after this, in some order, we have Florida State, Clemson, and Louisville in a row. Not great, Bob. No, not great at all. All right. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll leave it at that. Um Give everybody a couple minutes back of their their days if they were banking on this being, you know, hour or so. Uh, Dan, thanks as always for uh, for joining. Yes, hopefully uh, we will have more positive Syracuse and Mets things to report next week. Very much so, uh, everyone. Thanks for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. I'm John. That was Dan. Be sure to uh, rate, review, subscribe, whatever on Blog Talk and on iTunes. And uh, go Orange and the Mets. Go Orange, go Mets. Napa know-how. Right now, you can get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card by mail with the purchase of a Napa Legend Premium Battery. Its durability and power make it the obvious choice for people who hate getting stranded by a dead car battery. So pretty much everyone. The Napa Legend Premium Battery and $20 back. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. 
at participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. Limit two per household while supplies last. Offer ends 228.19. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.